got a job. My name is Mark Rothman. I'm the CEO of Magma Global. We are a travel concierge, corporate, doing corporate and luxury travel based in New, with offices in New York and LA. I founded the company five years ago. And, and Mark, so before Magma Global Travel, I know uh, you had been at another similar company, 400. We had spent uh, many fun years together working at a company called Platinum Rye Entertainment. But what was your, your, your first job or what was your, your job before that? Well, my very first job is I started in the mailroom of a talent agency. What agency was that? Innovative Artists. They're based in New York and L.A. And how did you get the opportunity at Innovative? So basically a couple of things. One, I had done a bunch of entertainment internships when I was in college. Where did you go to college? I went to Williams College. Williams College, which is in, in New York? Northwestern Massachusetts. And how did you get access to these internships? Not about the internships. Most of them were through either... I was fortunate because I had a cousin who was in the business, but then also there were internships that I applied to online and things like that. And Where did you find the jobs online? There was a great site called entertainmentcareers.net. I think it might still exist, and it basically had all these free listings, and that was actually how I got the job at what, Innovative, what too. What year do you think this was? I mean, the job at Innovative was – I graduated college in 2005. And so you found the job in your spring semester um, in school? I applied, and I got the phone call pretty much the same day I applied, and I'm pretty sure we either just finished finals – of senior year spring, or we had just come back from senior week. I can't remember which one of the two it was now. So you'd, so you'd graduated college with a job locked and loaded. Yeah. Basically, what happened was they called me up. They said, Where did they call you? On your, did you have a cell phone? I had a cell phone. It was 2005. I had a cell phone. They called me up on my cell phone. They asked me if I could come in and interview. I went into New York uh, just for the night and the day. How did, so you were, you were in school in northern Massachusetts. How far was the commute to New York City? About three hours. So what I did, I had a friend take me. I took the train in, um, went in, interviewed. They offered me the job on the spot. What, I mean, was, what was the job? Mailroom, $18,000 a year. $18,000 in a mailroom. And, and just question, um, had you interned before that? Yeah, I had. I had internships in college. I had uh, internships. I was fortunate. I grew up in New York City, so I had internships in high school. One of the first internships I had was this guy in my building – I forget – he's a lawyer, but I forget what he, – he did something with the DEA's office and he told my dad that there was a internship program the district attorney's office was doing and there was a $75 a week stipend and I got the internship. So, so your first internship was at the DA's office. Yeah, district attorney's office. I've known and, you for almost 12 years and I don't think I ever knew that. That's yeah, incredible. I was about 15 or 16 years old and they put me because – I had the entertainment background, and that's why I said I like to do so. They put me in the video unit where they would actually tape the confessions. How did you have an entertainment background at 15 years because old? Because I had I'd spent the previous summer interning for my cousin in L.A. So that was technically and, and my first time. your cousin was working in L.A. at a talent agency? Yeah, his own literary agency. So, But they saw that I at least had that, and that's why they put me in the so, video unit. So go back a little bit. You grew up in New York City. Yeah. You spent your whole life here. Yeah. How old were you when you went to go intern for your cousin in L.A.? Uh, it was after freshman year of high school. Your freshman year in high school? What yeah, I hated camp. You hated camp. You didn't love playing sports too much. Not in the Trevor no. Day dungeon. No, yeah. And so you said, Mom, Dad, I want to get out of here for the summer. And they said, go to work? Yeah, they, I said I wanted to intern. I wanted to learn about stuff, so I did it. I mean, you know. And how well did you know this cousin? Oh, he's, he's a good friend. I mean, he's, my, he's basically like my uncle. He's 30 years older than me. So, and so you spent all your holidays with him. You yeah, yeah. So, so, so you move out to L.A. at 14, 15, and where did you live? With my cousin. So I did 30 days out in L.A., 
came back. Did they pay you? I think they gave me again, like a, maybe I made two k that whole summer. Okay, I still have that two k. What bank was? Account. What did your internship consist of? Making copies, answering phones. And this was crazy. your first time in a real office. Yeah, it was my first time when I was about. So I was probably about fourteen or fifteen. Yeah. And how quickly did you pick some of these making copy, answering phone things up? I mean, that stuff was that stuff I picked up pretty quickly. There was still stuff, you know, like obviously everyone was anywhere from eight to twenty years older than me. So I think some of the social interactions and stuff like that, I probably wasn't ready for, but. Probably wasn't anyone else your age in an office at that no. point, was there? And so, but then when I went into the DA's office, like that was like a little bit of a different environment because it was mandatory. And that was it was kids in high school mostly. That was kids, but it was mostly kids who were going to their senior, probably their senior year. And I was going, I guess, into my junior year of, of high school. Yeah. So now you're in high school. You have an internship at a talent agency in Los Angeles. You come home, now you have another internship. This was the following summer. Next summer at the DA's office. Yeah. And you're still in high school, two internships in. Yeah, and, and so... And, and what do you think, just just right there alone, you had you had learned in two summers of interning uh, as a high school student who socially has, would have a hard time connecting with people 10 years older than them, just mentally not even really understanding what the business you're doing and, and where it goes. What were some of the key takeaways from that? I think a few of the key takeaways for me at least were you just kind of saw how people and offices and companies operated and obviously like working for the government and then working for a company that's 15 people at my uncle's agency, you see a lot of different things. But, you know, what I was exposed to early on, especially being at the DA's, obviously a lot of bureaucracy. And you also are introduced to a variety of people who care and don't care. For me, you know, I think what also was good about the DA's office, I worked in the video unit. So back then, courtrooms didn't have, if they needed to show video evidence, they didn't have TVs. So we would literally have huge, and this, this was well before flat screens, so we had the huge tube TVs we would have on wheeling carts with VCRs that we'd have to take all around the courthouses, so I would be crossing the street with them. And the best part is it was mandatory you wore a shirt, tie, khakis, and shoes every day. So here I am, I'm schlepping these things across the street, and the guys who work there normally are wearing t-shirts and you know sweatpants. And I would have to go deliver them to all these courtrooms. And one time I was crossing the street, the thing almost tipped. Yeah, this is that big TV you used to have like in school when they'd bring it Yeah, this is, like about, this is like about a 40-inch tube TV on one of those black things that was like a double-decker with the VCR. With the VCR, so that should tell you how old it is. We, we didn't have DVD. And yeah. so let's go back to why they gave you that role because you worked in entertainment. Entertainment, yeah. So they thought I'd find it interesting. So, I, so you worked in entertainment and the DA's office said, great, you're going to be the guy that wheels the TV around and, yeah. helps, and helps get the video played. And they and, paid $75 cash a week, I remember. That was, you'd go collect the money from some woman for 75 cash a so now you're still in high school, but you've learned a little bit about how to work in an office and be yeah. a professional. You've learned a little bit about bureaucracy and yeah. the fact that uh, you're not going to be the president overnight and you yeah. got to go through layers to speak to people. But what did you learn about when you said you see some people work hard and don't work hard? What did, what did, you, what did, what did you learn from that? Well, what I learned was if you worked hard, you could go places. And if you didn't work hard, you're kind of, it is what it is. And, you know, like I think what you saw a lot... And, you know, especially like in Hollywood, it's like everyone's trying to be a mover and shaker and trying to move up. Nobody goes and works at a, at a talent agency in the mailroom or as an assistant because they want to be an assistant for life. It's because they, it may, they might not want to be an agent, but they maybe they want to be a producer or maybe they want to be a writer or maybe they want to be this or that. But they're all trying to start and work their way up. Whereas, you know, working for a government agency, there are people who are just like, hey, I'm happy to get my paycheck. You know, they'll call in sick because, hey, they want to take the Friday off. And look, it's harder to get ahead at those companies as well. But at the same point, 
you know, it's you see these different environments and kind of just how people interact in the different environments and the type of people they attract as well. So it's so it sounds like for those people taking those Fridays off, you weren't one of those guys. No, unfortunately, and, and I'm still not. And. Uh, you look at those people when they take that Friday off as what the opportunity for you to advance when they're when they're not working. Um, no, I just think it probably goes notice because like it does go notice. It's like hey, they take off. They're, they're always sick on Friday. Like that used to be a joke. It's like yeah, they're always sick on Friday. They're always sick on you know they're always sick after a holiday weekend or before like it's like. So now we enter into college. Yeah. You have a couple internships under your belt. You know how to work. You know how to hustle. You understand your role in, in the bureaucracy of things. How many internships did you have? Did you intern every summer in college? I interned every summer. Um, I would say then it became a little more frustrating because then you begin to you begin to get a little bit older and you see people not carrying their weight and you're like, wait, like I'm an intern and I'm doing more. So, so where I did been, you intern in college? I interned at my first internship was at the Late Show with David Letterman. How'd you get that? I knew they hired did internships, so I asked my cousin. I said, "Hey, like I know they do it," and I actually knew they did internships because I had gone the previous summer and walked into the office and said, "Do you guys take interns?" And they had told me yes. How like, did you? How, what do you mean you walked into their office? You can't just walk into they David have a, Letterman's uh, office. They have so on the round corner of the studio is where the normal people take the elevator. When you say the, the round corner studio, you're talking about in Times Square. Yeah. Okay. So and so I basically found that address in the white pages back in the day. I went there and I went to the guy who was standing in front of the elevator or whatever, you know, because there are four elevator shafts and there's a guy and I said, you guys take interns? And he's like, he's like, we do, please send your resume to this email or whatever. And I said, okay. So then I basically went with that to my cousin and, and I think I sent them an email. I've just been like, hey, I want to intern. And then I said to my cousin, I go, look, like they have internships. Is this something you could help me with? And he helped me get an interview and I got an interview and they assigned me to um, I forget what they call it. it. was like something within production with like the director and stuff. And I would have to run videotapes up and down the stairs like 400 times a day. They, these jobs were physical jobs. Oh, yeah. All of them. Everything. I had one internship where only one woman would speak to me to change the water cooler. So you weren't on, behind a desk, on the phone, cutting deals, negotiating? No, yeah. You weren't just, sitting in meetings telling Dave no, what the next guest no, should be? No, but the one thing what they did, which what I thought was smart, is the interns, I don't think they paid us. But what they did that was smart was the interns had a role and the show couldn't operate with the interns. They would have had to hire people because there were just things they needed people to do. And that was the stuff they... So they kind of built a company based on having these interns and then in turn, the interns feel valuable and the interns want to be there and you get a lot out of it. Whereas I feel like there are a lot of internships where you walk into and they literally have nothing for you to do. So... Letterman, how many more internships through college? Then next summer was Nickelodeon, and then the following year was at a talent agency. So Nickelodeon, where was that? In New York City as New well? New York City, yeah. Everything was in New York City. How'd you break into Nick? How did, Nickelodeon, how did I apply for that? I, I not, That one, for some... Doesn't sound like you waited outside and asked a cousin for a favor. What was the talent agency you moved on to later? It was the Gersh Agency, and it was because I had the Gersh Agency on my resume that Innovative called me up, and, you know, again, it was from entertainmentcareers.net, but I got the job at Platinum Ryoff entertainmentcareers.net. So, going back to your application into Innovative, this is, your, this is the first job yeah. for you to potentially get out of college. Yep. You're, you went to Williams. Yep. Very good school, much better than uh, the education I probably got in my dual Hofstra Adelphi um, time. And ultimately, you said, 
I want to go work for $18,000 a year. Did you know that when they called you in? Oh, I knew I was going to, the pay was going to be below 20. And you didn't care. What were I, what were your friends making when they graduated for other business oh, type jobs? Between 40 and 70 probably back then. So 40 to 70,000 dollars and you get a call to potentially make under 20,000. How quickly did they want you to come in an interview? When you got when they, they called, called me on a Friday, they probably asked if I could come in on Monday. I think I probably came in on that Monday or Tuesday. And you had a friend drive you in? A friend drove me to the you drove me to Amtrak. I took the Amtrak who, in. Who was that friend? Uh, his name's Tim, Tim Crawley. He lives in Oregon. I actually saw him a couple of weeks ago. You saw him go. Do you, do, you, do you ever remind Tim that he gave you that ride to the train? No, because you know what I think now that I remember? I think he picked me up. I don't know if he gave me the ride. All right, to the train. all right, all right. <laughs> so we went and got dinner, but yeah. All right, so you, you dropped everything. You got into New York yeah. City. They offered you the job. You said yes. Yeah. So with $18,000, you went and got an apartment where? Oh, um, I got a very, I got a very good deal on an apartment in my uh, parents' apartment. In your parents' apartment, yeah. The bed, the bed I grew up, the bedroom I grew up in, I, I got so a very good deal. So on you, that. so you moved back home with your eighteen thousand dollars. Grandma wasn't far away. No, it was an apartment in the same building. So Grandma yeah, I had, I had, I had a good, I had a good deal. Amazing. So you're back home. You're at Innovative, and you're now working for eighteen thousand dollars a year. You're in delivering the, mail. So now you're delivering mail. Yeah, and. How long did you stay at Innovative for? I started in June of '05, and I left in um, at the end of September of '06. Wow! So uh, a good, good fifteen plus months. Yeah, and um, I was in the mailroom for about two to three months, and I became an assistant to two agents for like a year. And your role in the mailroom—I think we hear a lot of stories about the mailroom and this fabled history. Um, you know, can can you shed without giving away too much uh, secret sauce? What is what is a job in the mailroom? It's just as sexy as it sounds. It's, what time did you get in? I think we had to get in before everyone. So I think we got in at like nine or nine thirty. Again, by the way, you had to be in the mailroom, but you had to wear a shirt every day, khakis, uh, shoes. You couldn't wear sneakers. I don't even think they were doing casual Friday at that point. And, and but but you did more than hand out mail. We would find scripts, photocopy, dub tapes. We would fill in for the receptionist. We would. We would sub for assistance when they were out. We would um, send packages. We would print out sides for people who were going to auditions. Um, and, you know, what you would do while you were there, like the biggest thing is like during the downtime was really what you made of it. So you would try to read scripts. You would try to read the trades. Um, you would try to watch demo tapes. You would try to familiar, uh, and did the And did the executives like, say, hey, here's a good script to read? Sometimes they would. There were a few that were nice, and I think they could also – I think the problem is the mailroom, you see so many people come and go, they don't always invest in those types of people, but I think they maybe, they took a shining to me and they invested a little bit more time into me. Were there, were there, were there aspects of the mailroom or, or elements like scripts or, or internal memos or things maybe that you shouldn't have read that you somehow got access to from time to time? We really didn't have to do that many memos because at that point there were email, but you would get the company-wide emails and stuff like that. What about at the printer? Uh, at the printer? Oh, yeah, I'd go through everything in the printer. All you try to do is, like, when you're in the mailroom, is like, you just try to read everything. Like, just so you could understand everything that's going on. So if someone asks you a question, you just you just know what's going on. You but, know but, all but, but, but all these things weren't just given to you. No, they? basically nothing's given to you when you're there. The only thing that's given to you is the mail cart and $18,000. <laughs> and that $18,000 really isn't so, given to you. It's twice every two weeks you get a check for, like... 
four hundred bucks with your taxes taken out. Yeah, and then health insurance. No health insurance. Oh, no they took health the insurance, insurance out. out. Yeah. And so, how did you get access to that data? What? Oh, the information. I just read every email that came in. I looked at stuff that was in the printer all the time, um, and I would just see what's going on. I would see what agents are asking for because we would see what projects were going on. Talk about the printer for a second. When you would go to the printer, were you going to pick up your documents? Well, there were two out? things. We had our own copier. It was it was called a DocuTech. I remember there was a guy who used to fix the DocuTech because it would break like every week. This poor guy. This was his whole job fixing DocuTechs. And then there was a pr- there were two printers outside and. You know, like you go through and you see what's going on, but for the most part, you know, you were basically, people would just send you stuff to print, so you were seeing everything that was going on. But some of the stuff in the printer probably wasn't yours. Correct. But you read it anyway. It's in the printer. <laughs> so it's in the printer. Yeah, so if it mattered so much to them, they would pick it up right away. And like when I had to go print out my resumes to apply to another job, I ran over to the printer. Very good. You know what I mean? Very like, good. So you're two, three months in. <coughs> What's the average lifespan that you do get promoted out of the mailroom? It usually can be anywhere from two to six months, and it just depends on what happens ahead of you. So it's either pe- assistance leaving, new agents becoming new agents. And, and how I- many people are in the mailroom with you? Uh, at the time, it was just me and one other guy, and there was a point where it was just me for a little bit, too. And so what do you think got you promoted after those two, three months? Well, two people became an agent, and it was kind of, they kind of had no choice. I was there, but I think they also they also thought that I had some potential, hopefully, I think, and they saw that I was doing a good job, I think. And was there a specific person there that you think saw that potential that you remember? I think there were a couple of people. Who I were think they? One of them was one of the agents I started working for, Ken Lee, who was always very supportive, and he's someone who started in the mailroom as well. Ken's still at Innovative today? He's still at Innovative. He's still an agent there. And what, um, did, what do you think Ken saw in you? I have no clue. I Probably someone who's willing to hustle and do all the necessary work and probably someone who could read. Because I also think, you know, the type of people you attract when you're offering $18,000, it's, you know, you're going to get a lot of resumes from people who just don't give a damn. So that Williams education they, started to pay off yeah well i mean i had the diploma hanging in the mailroom so so now you're now you're promoted to an assistant yeah assistant to two agents yep. assistant to two agents and you're there for now another 12 months or so yep and got a, got a promotion to twenty two thousand dollars or twenty three eighteen to twenty three. Yep. So hey, that's a 25 percent raise. Yeah. So I was able to spring for both bunk beds in the room in my parents' room. Nice, nice. You uh, kicked out the invisible roommate. Yeah, yeah. All right. Very cool. So, and where was your office? Our office was on Nineteenth and Park Avenue South. And you lived downtown, so that was yeah, a pretty convenient so, walk. Yeah, I walked every day. It was about ten fifteen blocks. Did they pay for your lunch? They did not pay for my lunch. Okay. All right. And so now you're there for, for almost a year and a half, yeah. and what happens? I mean, I just think I wanted more, and I just felt like there wasn't a lot of movement, and I wanted a place that where you could move up quickly, and you know, I just felt there was like a limited ceiling, and you know, the company's headquartered in New York as well, even though we have about 50, they have about 50 35, 50 people in New York. Um, so, so go back to that moment now. You're working there. The printer seems to be the best friend. Yeah. You, as you said, you start printing out your resumes and you're standing right by it. What were you doing with those resumes that you were printing? Um, well, so basically, the way I thought the best method to stay in New York and work in entertainment was to look at companies that were either forming here or starting here because they'd be, you know, basically a skeleton crew. So go back. And they would have the most room for upward mobility and movement. So what I was doing is I was aggressively reading. Variety, Hollywood Reporter, 
um, and a few other sites as well that I thought had entertainment-leaning things about any type of company that was in entertainment, whether it was, you know, production, finance, whatever it was, and just seeing what it was. And when I was reading Variety, one day at lunch, I saw that Scott Rudin Productions had hired um, an agent in U- at UTA, his name's Jeff Morley, to run their development out of New York, and he was going to move to New York. So whatever, I read this article, and that triggered to me as I go, well, if this guy's moving from L.A. to New York, his assistant at UTA isn't following him. So I called up there thinking Jeff Morley might need an assistant. And when I called up, they go, well, no, Jeff doesn't need an assistant because the development people don't get an assistant, but Scott needs an assistant. Can you come in and interview? So let's, let's, let's just go over that for a second. You knew you wanted to leave. You could have went and applied with that resume. Now you've worked at a handful of talent agencies. You've worked at Dave Letterman. There's William Morris. There's CAA. There's ICM. These legendary talent agencies. Major production companies you have. Your Paramounts. Your Foxes of the world. What made you think? And what was what really was that moment that you said, Hey, let's look for people moving here because they'll need my help. Because that is almost... You know, as we talk about traits of finding a job and growing in a job, you, bring, you, you, went, you went back on how you created value for the people around you. What really sparked that thought around, don't go for the guys that are already here, go for the guys that are coming here? Well, because I think what happened was, I remember I interviewed at like a big PR company. The salary was basically the same, the hours were the same, and I was like, this, that just felt to me like a lateral move. And I feel, felt like at 23 years old, I might as well take some chances. Um, and I felt that I want to move quickly and to go to a company that is already like, hey, these are our 10 co-presidents and our ten, like there wasn't going to be enough movement because basically what triggers movement and entertainment, at least what I saw, especially working at David Letterman, David Letterman, most of the people who had the top jobs, 30 years with him. They were interns with him when he was on NBC. So, so, so I mean, the bottom line was just, you needed to get where a company was starting and be kind of at you know, ground zero, you got to be at the bottom floor. But isn't that a risk? It's a risk that was worth that. When you're making $23,000 a year, you're willing to take a risk. Well, you got to lose. Yeah. And so the bottom line is I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have rent to pay. So it was worth taking a risk. And I think the same thing when I took the job in the mail, I go, it's a risk, but hopefully it'll lead to other things. So you impress the Scott Rudin production folks by searching them out, giving them a call. They say, hey, this, this, this executive doesn't need a job, but the legendary Scott Rudin yep, needs an assistant. Use an assistant. And now, do you, had you had known of Scott Rudin at that moment? I had known of him, and then when you kind of walk in, they tell you a little bit more, and then I will say this. No matter what they tell you, it doesn't really prepare you for that. I, I don't think I knew fully what I was getting into, but I had some idea, but it was probably the best decision I ever so, made. So Scott Rudin, the big producer... Social Network, The Notebook, I think. Maybe I'm confusing Not The Notebook. People. Social Network, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, Truman Show, The Firm, Adam's Family, um, Royal Tannenbaums. Broadway too, right? Broadway, Book of Mormon, um, Wicked, um, what, Fences, um, very, you name it. Very little things. Very Hello things. Dolly, that's currently playing. Very few things get made, it sounds like, without Scott's involvement. Someone asked me where the Tonys are this year. I said, wherever Scott Rudin is standing. So you have an inter- you have an interview at, t- at Scott's office, and Scott's known for having a lot of assistants. But, yeah, but five at every you- time. I'm sorry? Five at a time, we have. Five assistants at a time. So when you went to interview for Scott, what was appealing about that? It was just something different, and it was a small environment, and he was there. 
you know, having worked at a place like Innovative where really the heads of the company are based in LA, like Scott's there. And the way it was always pitched to me and positioned to me working at Scott Rudin's was, hey, if you could go and survive this, the world is your oyster, basically. So it was kind of something where I felt it was more of a challenge. You know, like, I don't think at the beginning I knew exactly what I was getting into, but I think that's also a little bit of being... 23 years old. Which is great because it's arguable to say maybe if you had read that New Yorker article that had come out years later, you might have been a little bit more hesitant to go run through the door and just take a risk. I think, though, because I ended up reading all the stuff before I started, it was worth... I mean, at the end of the day, I guess the point was if I'd only made it... And a lot of people... Look, when I was there, I was there for about eight or nine months. We ran through 22 people. Hold on. You were there for eight or nine months, and there were 22 different assistants, but five at a time. Yeah, so but we, but we somebody, fired. We ran through 22 So people, somebody yeah. was probably getting fired every other week. Pretty much. I mean, sometimes we do two at a time, especially during the holidays. So you go to, you go to this interview for Scott Rudin. They already had, what, they have four assistants, and they needed, a, they needed a fifth to fill? Well, they had one out in L.A., and they needed the documents assistant, which was kind of the one who had to read all of his emails, print out anything that was an attachment in all the emails, that assistant needed to be filled because they already had a personal one. They had one who handled the phones, and they had his executive. So there were four of us out in the bullpen. So they hired me to do the documents. Let's go back to before they hired you. So you go on the interview. Why do you think they hired you? This has got to be a pretty. I think they needed a human. Bo- I think they needed a physical body. Um, and you can, I think you can read, write, spell, and were willing. I think what they later told me was they thought that I had the mind for it because basically you have to be able to handle a lot that's going on. And be able to process it all and kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together and then also be a little forward thinking and be proactive and realize where something's going. And those were skills they told me I had, but I don't necessarily knew. I don't think I knew I had and wouldn't have – if someone said to list out skills, I wouldn't have said that. So so going back on that, those, those key traits were important to them. They recognized that yep. to you. They actually helped you recognize it in yourself. When you look back at your work history, where do you think those skills came from? Um, I think it's a combination of all my internships. I think some of it's a combination of school, too. Um, I think I always had a little bit of this. It wasn't this hustler's mentality so much as just I kind of look for cracks in infrastructure and take the path of least resistance. Crack, but, cracks like people not showing up on Fridays. Not showing up or just, you know, I remember when I was in college because I, I, the college I went to was basically a bunch of dorks. And they used to, the college used to... A, pay to throw parties basically with beer and they would pay for the beer and as I started learning more about the system they had in place it turns out they would pay you to host the party and serve the beer and they needed like three people per party and what they were paying people was pretty good money because it was like 20 to 30 dollars an hour and they would so basically I realized they could pay you to drink and all you had to do was like a four-hour course so I said to all my friends I go this is incredible I go they will put a keg of beer of our choosing in our dorm and pay me 20 to $30 an hour to have that beer here. And so I said to them, I go, I'm going to take this course. And then all of a sudden, all my friends took the course. And all of a sudden, we were getting paid to drink. So instead of we, – we used to go to these parties and it probably wouldn't cost us anything or we'd go and buy beer and it was costing us money. But all of a sudden, on a Saturday night, I was going out and getting drunk and I was, make, I was kind of just waking up with $120 in my pocket. So you figured out a way – And the college was paying me, you, behind you. So you figured I wasn't out a, a bartender. The college was paying me. You figured out a way to leverage your college education to become essentially an employee of your school to get paid to drink and yeah. have a good time. Yeah. Since then, they've cut out the program in the last <laughs> couple of years, I've heard. 
when you look back at that, you look back at college, your career, even the DA. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of those traits combined made you very valuable to get this this somewhat prestigious and difficult achieving job at, at Scott Rudin Productions to be one of his five assistants. Yep. I think you mentioned that you were reading and printing his emails. When we yep. go back to the printer, yes. how important that was, you were now being given access to probably some very sensitive and Oh, you saw every all of his emails. And I saw is, every and, email. And, it was about 500 emails and, a day. And he's emailing with, we don't need names of names, but you're talking about your most powerful people in Hollywood and entertainment. Yeah. He's emailing with any, his most powerful people, personal relationships, and you see it all, and it's just kind of one of those things where it's you need to process it all. And, and, and how did how did your mind react to that? Right? I mean, let's let's go back and do the math. You wanted to work in entertainment. You worked really hard, hustling to put yourself in a position where you can always add value and get yourself access. And now you're kind of been given this this role, which in essence was the springboard to to the rest of your your career in yeah. some aspect. What was going through your mind when this when this when this person said, "Hey, here's the email," and you're probably seeing heads of studios, yeah. agents that you can never even speak to, and you're and you're learning that. What what did that do to, to you, just from an energy standpoint? Um, I think it was exciting. Granted, the hours were six a.m. to ten p.m. Hold on, you, hold on. What? The hours were six. You'd come to the office at six a.m. and you'd leave at ten p.m. So you you got in the office at six a.m. What Every time morning. did Scott arrive? Anytime between probably six oh five and. Nine, depending on the day, and depending and, on what's and, going and on. And what happened at six oh five a.m.? How did the day start? Oh, it usually started with him calling us up, giving us a million things to do, or screaming at us, or something like that. You know, and I think you had to be on and ready to go at six in the morning. And I, I, I don't drink coffee, so it was like a very weird thing. So when you say about getting emails and access to these people and stuff, I think it didn't really s- set in at the time. I think now looking back on it, I'm like, wow. And I think there are certain things as times moved on where I look back on, like, I remember, I mean, like, I vividly remember that I set a meeting with Scott and Harold Ramis, who has since passed away, who was, you know, directed Ghostbusters and all that stuff. And, you know, like at the time I was like, oh, I thought that was cool. And, you know, I had a, I had to have a conversation with him because he he was coming from Chicago and he didn't set his clock back, and so he showed up at the breakfast at the wrong time. And he goes, "Where's Scott?" And I go, "He's coming at breakfast at eight o'clock." And he's like, "But it's eight, eight and, eight, and he goes, "Oh crap!" And I remember like thinking that, and I was just like, "This is like a cool thing, and this is something you know, like." So this, I, so this is Harold Ramis, director of Ghostbusters yeah, so and other movies that we all grew up on. Yeah, like I mean, this was Egon Spengler. So, so you go from Mister. Mailroom yeah. pushing the TV across the board, and now you're assisting one of the most powerful men in all of all of entertainment, but, if not all of business. But the thing is, at the end of the day, I'm the assistant. It's not like after that I maintained a relationship with Harold Ramis. It's and, not and like. Now, and now, are you picking up some of these some of these traits, some of these tricks, some of these tips that Scott has to remain in power and build himself? Yeah, I mean, I saw what made him successful. You see it just because of how hard he's working. Because you know, I'm in at six a.m. He's up at five in the morning. I'm go, you know, I'm leaving the office at ten. He's leaving at nine, and he's probably going to bed at eleven or something. He's going to the theater every night to see his plays and stuff. And you, you just saw someone who, you know, Scott. I think famously, if you look him up, I think he got his first job at fourteen or fifteen, working for casting director, and then he was running Fox by twenty six. So I remember you telling me a story when we first met about the way Scott would roll his calls early in the yeah. morning to the West Coast. Yeah, you tell me a little bit. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, we would call everyone. Before they would open and leave messages, it was called leaving word. So, so, so start over. You'd call up people at what time? 
I think like at CAA, like I believe the receptionist gets it at eight, so we call it seven fifty-five. Before the receptionist shows up, why? Yeah. So we can leave a message for him on a on a voicemail. Correct, and I just be leaving word for people. And did you have actually something specific to talk to those people about? I have no idea. He would just say that we had to call him. We would have a call sheet probably about. 30 pages deep. And you start your morning, Scott Scott goes, has you leave a message for, what, yeah. half of Hollywood at this point? Yeah, and we do it again at lunch, and we do it sometimes again at night. And what would happen when those people would call back? I'd say take one out of 30 calls, but it was always to let those people know he was thinking of them. So, it was kind so he of, didn't have an agenda of something specific to talk to him. He wanted to keep himself top of mind and let them know that they're important to him. Correct, and I think sometimes, eventually, I think sometimes he'd play the game for five or six days and then actually get on a call with the person to discuss what he needed to discuss, but he kind of wanted to have kind of the build-up and the momentum to it. But it also, you know, it taught, I think, me a lesson, too, and everyone else that, like, same thing about sales. It's like, you got to keep in touch with people and keep, uh, you know, a, there's got to be a touch point. It's like, we do a newsletter. I think our newsletter is absolutely worthless, except once a month, they just see our company's name there in their inbox. Even if they delete it, it's just a reminder we exist. Is that something you think you learned from Scott? A little bit. And I think what I also learned from him is, you know, like I personally think one of the – he was a very generous guy. I think one of the bigger mistakes people make is, you know, sending out a generic holiday email blast. Like what I – you know, for Thanksgiving, what I do is there are a few people who either I haven't heard from or whatever. I just send them an email just being like – Hey, hope you're well. I just want to wish you and your family a great Thanksgiving. You know, it actually helped re-engage me with a great client for us now at Magma. But that's just something where I think you do, and and I know you have and your, it's a personal touch. I know you have your famous holiday cards as well. Yeah, and I sent out a joke holiday card, and that actually I think that originated based on when I left my job at Innovative. Um, I gave them all. I gave all the agents and the people who were really good to me their mugs. With a picture of me on it, and thank so, God this is a uh, audio podcast yes, and not yeah, a video podcast, because yeah. uh, you know we always say Mark had a, Mark as well as this Mark has a face for radio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we probably got a voice for silent film. Yeah, exactly. And so basically, you know, like I think there are things you can do to be funny and top of mind, and, and you still do that today. Yeah, and, there's and, still and, stuff I do today, and I you handwrite those holiday cards. cards. Yeah, and for us now. Our company probably sends out our company sends out holiday gifts, and I think last week we did it like 100 to 125 gifts, maybe a little more. And I was like, every note card's gonna be handwritten. So I was like, I don't want to print. I want every note card handwritten. It sucks, but we do it. Like, so, so let's let's talk about some of that stuff that you learned from Scott, because with five assistants there, I got to imagine, especially coming, you're the low man on the totem pole, and you were only there for about eight to nine months. I know they they yeah. they, they have a lot of turnover, but. How did you get access to Scott when you were one of five? Um, or the bottom of five? Well, basically, everyone kind of has it because there aren't that many people. And then, you know, for whatever reason, I got promoted to become his executive assistant after a little bit of time. But I think he also can see it, too. He recognizes when someone's keeping up with the emails and knows what's going on. And what I think the things that he looked for and the things that I still look for in people is... Real is kind of not taking no for an answer and thinking outside the box. So when you're working with him, you're competing with probably four or five other amazing people that had to work pretty hard to get this job. Yeah. But the kid it, next to me went to Yale. 
sat next to me, went to Yale. And you had to figure out a way to stand out to become that lead executive assistant. I remember you told a great story. I think you kind of worked really hard to get there, but something kind of happened by accident. Oh, well, are you talking about the time where he fired everyone? So he would fire us all the time. And so one time he fired us and he goes, everyone leave the office. And what what, what do you mean he'd fire you all the time? Hold on, you get fired and you're gone. Well, he would fire you and you were kind of like not really fired. You were just like kind of like on timeout or whatever. So where where was timeout? We would go to, uh, I don't know if it's still there. It was called Cranberries. It was a bodega that had like, but it was one of those bodegas that had like sushi and had pizza and it had two floors. It was a duplex. So we'd go up to the second floor and we'd sit there and wait for him to call us back or whatever or for someone to kind of smooth things over. So he fires he fires all the assistants. Yes. Yeah, so all, all the assistants walk downstairs to Cranberries. Yeah, so the four or five of us are there. So let's just talk about this. So you go at Cranberries and was there like a thing like if you didn't hear from him by the end of the day you were really fired or what, how did that process eventually play out for Usually people? someone would call you up and say, hey, you're not coming back. But did people always get that or they were just fired? It depended on the situation. That situation, like obviously he wasn't going to start from scratch with no one because you needed people to train up the other people. So we knew was just a thing and you know and I'm watching the emails come in and we're watching them and he forwards me an email he goes can you print and bring this to me so I look at it and so hold on so you're sitting at Cranberries yeah now you're you're in the office he fires everyone you all walk downstairs to Cranberries yep you're sitting in Cranberries hoping somebody's gonna come and say well, hey come back up or hey Scott's over it comes downstairs and you get an email. Yeah, Scott forwards print and bring this to me. And so what we did was, is because when he would fire us, he had an assistant in L.A. And the assistant in L.A. would roll the calls for him and get him whatever he needs. So we called the assistant in L.A. and his name was Louie. And I would go, Louie, we go, he just emailed Mark to print him a script. Does he think Mark is there? And he's like, he's like, it's like it doesn't matter. Mark needs to get there and print the script. He wants the script. So, so how many people are sitting in Cranberries with you at this time? Three other people. And... Only you got the email. Yeah, so I, I, he forwarded me the email. We all got all of his emails, but he forwarded me the email. Goes print this. So I. Print so you it. get an email that says print. You call the assistant in LA with the other three. So all four of you call the assistant. And say he told Mark to print something, and the assistant said, "Get upstairs and print it." Yeah. And was that all four of you going upstairs? No, that was just me. So you go back upstairs. What happens to those other three people at Cranberries? They're still sitting at Cranberries. And what happened was we usually would forward the phones to LA. So I unforwarded the phones. And so basically I'm printing, I'm doing all this stuff, and it's just me so for now, about an hour. So, so now you're in the office, you're one assistant in New York, one assistant in L.A., three people at Cranberries. Did they ever get the call to come back up? Well, so what happened was he called me in. After one point, we are doing this for about an hour. For an hour, we're going back and forth on this. I'm rolling calls with him. I'm printing scripts. I'm, and is this four people's job at this yeah, point? Yeah, I mean, we had four people employed to do this. And so I'm doing all of this, and I... You know, he starts saying to me, he goes, he goes, what's the deal? And I go, I go, I don't know. Like, we're just adjusting because we, what happened was we had switched people at some, few people had switched roles. And so I tried to say, he goes, well, we got to get better at this or whatever. He said, have them come back up or whatever. So I had them come back up. And then actually how I got promoted was the kid who was, his executive assistant used to do phones. And he basically had enough one day because he got upset at everyone. And he literally, he fired the kid who was doing phones, he goes, you leave. He points to the kid who was the executive assistant who used to do phones. He goes, you sit there. And then he pointed to me and he goes, you sit there. And that was it. And then that's how I became the executive so now assistant. You're, so now you're assistant number one. Yeah. How many months in was this? It was probably five or six weeks. Five or six weeks? Yeah. And then you, and, and you and lasted then, another six, seven months. Yeah. And so basically what happened was after that, then like five hours later, the 
HR woman comes to me and goes, hey, this is what we're going to do. And she offered me at that point much more than I was making in the mail How room. How much did you get to go work at Scott? I think I went from 23 to like 45, 50 because they paid you like hourly overtimes on wow. top of it too. And then once I became an executive assistant, I started making some real nice money. And, and, and I think they gave you a stipend for dinner? Yeah, they gave me every time you were in the office past 7 or 8 o'clock, you got $15 towards dinner. And to me, that, and by the way, unlimited free much, cabs. And how much did you spend on dinner? I was as close to the 15 as I could. <laughs> I would basically go into Silver Spurs, which was right across from my parents, and I'd be like, how can we get up to 15, guys? What can we do? Can I get a cookie? Can I get another soup? So these last, can I get a burger? What so, can I get? So now these six, seven months that you stayed at Scott, he, you had a lot of assistants come and go, but he kept yeah. you? Yeah, we had a lot of people come and go. And lifespan of Scott's office is what, three to six months? I mean... If you're an assistant, at he, best... Yeah, like if you make it six months, you're really good. My goal – so when, when I went in there, I went in there with the mentality of let me get it through two weeks. And then after two weeks, I was like, let me make a month. And then what happened was because I started in the fall, I was like, let me get to Thanksgiving. But by the time I got to Thanksgiving, I was already his executive assistant. And so I was like, let me get to Christmas. And then after that, it was just like let me just keep on going and doing my job. So I think at that point, you know, your goal is just to come in there every day and do your job and get through it. You're not really – you don't have the brain power to start thinking future steps ahead or even being like, wow, I just spoke to Ari Emanuel or I'm emailing with this director or this actor or this producer's in our lobby or you just don't – you, you kind of recognize it but in the moment you're just like so focused on what's the next task at hand because there was just always something more. And so when we put that job at Platinum Rye up on entertainmentcareers.net, we got your resume in. Uh, it was to be the assistant of our our executive Ryan Shinman. Yeah, the CEO. Yeah, the CEO. And we looked at it and we saw your name next to Scott Rudin. And the consensus in the office was, if he worked for Scott Rudin for six weeks, he can run laps around this building. He worked there for almost nine months. Let's not hesitate. Yeah. And from there, uh, you've been able to springboard that into you know a very compelling career to now where you are your own CEO. You are managing people. You are doing a lot of what you learned from Scott. You've actually helped a lot of other people's business and careers by doing that. Is there is there anything you would have done differently when you look back at those internships, when you look back at how hard you worked to get to Scott's office, which really was the catapult for you? Or is there any oh. or is there or is there a specific key takeaway from the process there that, that you think has stuck with you? I would say it's a numbers game because like, you know, we focus a lot on the jobs I've gotten, we could probably do another 10 to 20 hours on the jobs I didn't get, on the places I interviewed and I never heard back from, the people who I emailed and I never heard back from, you know, and I'm the type of person and I just, I was doing an informational interview with someone recently and, you know, she can't, she went to Michigan and so she has a really good alumni network and stuff and I said to her, look, I said, you need to go to that alumni network and email if there are 100 people's emails listed with their companies in new york that are something that's interesting you need to email all 100 of them and she was like well, and i said to her i said look i said i did that in college and i said i probably emailed 50 to 60 people I, I was in college i was emailing probably i had a goal of to email 10 to 15 people a day and i would just send cold emails being like hey i'm graduating I, I had the email basically so i could cut and paste it and i would spend all day trying to find people's emails which Back then, it was like you'd have to call a receptionist. Like, you wouldn't always have it. And just knowing that maybe one in 15 hits and they respond, and then out of that response, maybe one in 10 agrees to get on the phone with you or agrees to meet with you. And to me, it's a numbers game. And it's the same thing. It's like 
I think internet and technology have changed like dating and the job hunt. Because like same thing, it used to be like I used to say if you go to a bar, I said you got to talk to fifty girls. If you think, and, and then a few of them maybe they'll let you buy them a drink and you have a conversation with, and maybe one of them becomes your girlfriend. And same thing with jobs, you have to apply to a hundred to get one or two because it's never look. Some people are really fortunate and maybe they get the first job they apply to out of college and they're there forever. But or if you're Pete Schaefer, you get the first girl you talk to in the bar because you're that beautiful. Well, correct. That's what I'm saying. Like you need to have something. But at the end of the day, it's the amount of jobs I applied for. The amount of times I probably sent out my resume to either never hear back or whatever, you have to keep kind of pushing it. And, you know, the one thing when I do meet with people on just an informational basis, I said, always feel free to email me and be like, hey, I'm applying to this job and maybe I know someone there. So that, you know, now that you're in this seat of the, you're the hire, you're, you're the CEO, you're, the, you're, you're in Scott Rudin's chair, um, someone looking to come work for you, someone that wants to work for your company, what's the best advice you can give to somebody before they walk through your door? I would say come prepared, ask questions, um, explain why you want to do this because my biggest turnoff is when someone's like, I need a job because I want someone who wants to be there. And then the biggest thing for me, the differentiation where people have, I've interviewed candidates and I thought they were great. And I give everyone my card. I go take 24 hours to think about this, talk to your parents, whatever, talk to whoever you would take career advice from and then email me and let me know if you're interested or whatever. People don't send thank yous. They don't follow up after that. Like, they don't and, and so I'm saying like follow up, follow up, follow up because the amount of time it takes you to send an email is so minuscule and the rewards you can get from it are amazing. And like I just see it in business, the types of clients we get just because sometimes I just send them a text or I email them. It ends up playing a great role in it. And for me, I think you should come in prepared Come in professionally dressed and be ready to follow up. And I think it does help. Look, I think when people ask me questions, I like that. That being said, I don't like people ask me, do I interview people? I almost don't interview people. I spend the first 20 minutes of the interview trying to, to scare the shit out of people and being like, hey, this is what it is at its worst. This is what it is at its worst. There are some sexy parts of our business. There's some great aspects of our business. We get to do a lot of wonderful things. You get to travel. You get to do X, Y, and Z. You get to spend every day with me. You get to have access to a CEO. But at the end of the day, it's like the resumes at this point, a lot of them bleed and blend together in my opinion. These people come in. I don't even remember where half of them went to school. I don't look at the resume that much anymore. And I do everything through referral and word of mouth. Because I think right now the problem is, at least what I see, like I have a relative who works at Discovery. He said, he said, they're have trouble finding people. And I go, How? I go, your discovery communications. I said, you guys have your publicly traded, huge corporate offices in New York, Los Angeles, Virginia, big territories. How do you guys have trouble? And they go, well, we post on our job website. And I was like, that job website must get 10,000 applications. And the problem with finding the good people from the bad people is impossible. And so what I found was if you do referrals and word of mouth, Someone is at least saying, please take a look at this human being. This human being is worth you meeting with. And at least I found in the last two years, which I never thought I would find is, I have more than enough candidates who could be good. Like I am meeting enough candidates now where I'm like, wow, if someone were to leave or I need to staff up, I can find someone. Awesome. And that's, and so, but I think a lot of that's come from referrals and word of mouth and I think that's probably where the internet lets you down. So, so the internet, great way, great way to tie this together. The internet's not a referral. Correct. Just because you have an email address, 
So just because a job's on LinkedIn doesn't mean it's it's uh, doesn't mean you're going to get it. So use your network, even if that's mom, dad, and cousin, even that that's a job at the FBI or the DA's office when you want to be in entertainment, yeah. and make yourself valuable. Be tenacious, hustle. Yeah. And ultimately, it sounds like that little extra bit of effort of following up and showing people you really care has been the difference maker. Yeah. One final thing that I guess I could say is when you talk about like the touch points and doing something that's personalized, I worked out for Scott during Christmas and I should have brought up the story earlier. This is good about the touch points and things. And it's like with the mugs or whatever, the assistants would always get him a gift. And he liked, like, classic books and things like that. But for some reason, like, we were doing this play and Angela Lansbury was in it. And he loved Angela Lansbury. Like, you knew he loved Angela Lansbury. Like, he thought she was the greatest. So bobbleheads were a really big thing in about 2006 or whatever. So I went on eBay because there was really – Amazon was only a bookseller at that point. I went on eBay and I looked up for an Angela Lansbury bobblehead. I wanted to see if I could get an Angela Lansbury bobblehead. And I couldn't find it, but what I did find was there was a Murder, She Wrote board game. And honestly, if you're listening to this on a device and you could go look it up, it was this Murder, She Wrote board game. And it had this cartoon picture of her that looked like, you know, like that she was like on Scooby-Doo. Just on the front of it, it was the Murder, She Wrote board game. And it was, you know, it was you could tell someone had this sitting in their attic since 1983 or whatever. And I said, why don't we get this for Scott? And everyone said to me, they said, are you out of your mind? I said, let's get this for him. And so we got that for him for Christmas. And you got to understand, for Christmas, I mean, he's getting so much crap from people. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of gifts and all this nonsense. And so we bring it all to his house and we just dump it there with cards or whatever. And so during Christmas, we obviously had to come in and work during the holidays or whatnot. And I remember he called me in in his office. And it was a little more casual between, like, I would say the 26th to the 1st. And, he, and I was in his office and he goes, he goes, by the way, he goes... Who gave me that Angela Lansbury board game? And I go, oh, that was from us. He goes, oh, he goes, that was great. He goes, that was really good. And I, said, <laughs> and I just said, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, whether or not does he always remember it, I don't know. But then about, uh, it was later that year because I left in May and I came work at Platinum Ryan May. He won, one of the movies I'd worked on was No Country for Old Men and he accepted the Oscar for it that February. And so I just, I sent him an email note. I said, hey, like, Congratulations. Uh, hopefully the Oscar does not displace the Angela Lansbury board game in your house. And he goes, ne- and he wrote me back, never. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, it's one of those things that, you know, same thing with the mug. It's like something just to kind of remember you by, and that's a little bit different. So, um, so it's fair to say if he saw you today, he may not remember you, but he remember your Angela Lansbury board game. He's got that in his apartment. That I know for sure. So. Awesome. Awesome. Mark, thank you for doing this. All that's right. Great. No problem.